0: Joseph Dunbar was, to say the least, excited. Today is his 17th birthday, and tomorrow he starts a new job. A job that he had longed to have since his family moved from Christchurch. Joseph's friends tried to get him to celebrate and party tonight, but he refused and instead stayed in. He needed all his bearings running at full steam so he can be on his A-game tomorrow. He proudly told his mom, I am staying in. I have work tomorrow morning. So his mom, Philippa, bought KFC to celebrate his birthday and the start of his new career. You see, Joseph had to wait until he turned 17 before getting this job. So on his second day as a 17-year-old, he took the chance and got the job. He even convinced the manager to let him start on a Friday instead of the next week. He cannot wait to get up and go. He truly felt that this new job will give him a stable career for the rest of his life. His mom also said that Joseph wanted to do this for a very long time. So the next day, his brother-in-law, who also works at the same place, took him inside for a quick tour. Once done with the tour, Joseph eagerly started his workday, and with an enthusiastic grin on his face and two thumbs up before heading in, He turned and never looked back. Joseph will never live to see his 18th birthday. You are listening to Untimely, a podcast about events in earlier or recent history that resulted in untimely fatalities and damages in its wake. I am your host, Lynn. Today we go down the mines of Pike River in Greymouth, New Zealand, where a mining disaster shattered the town to its core even to this day. Mining disasters in the world have occurred multiple times over history and have been recorded as early as 1900. In the early days of mining, there were no reliable safety precautions or official working guidelines despite the occupational hazards. Over time, these disasters have led to better conditions, with an emphasis on safety and improved technology in both the industry and in the safety and wellness of its employees. What's shocking about this case in Greymouth is that it happened in modern times where we should have learned from previous tragedies tenfold. The city of Greymouth sits on the west coast in the South Island of New Zealand. In earlier history, the Maori, or the indigenous Polynesian people, settled and developed the land in many years past. The Maori, named the town Mawera, translated as widespread river mouth, as it is conveniently located at the inlet of the Grey River that flows to the Tasman Sea and was located at the foot of the Southern Alps. Greymouth is around 233 kilometers or 144 miles west of the town of Christchurch. Now in 1846, Thomas Brunner and Charles Heafy traveled the area in search of land to settle. Upon their arrival, the local Maori welcomed them with open arms and were treated very kindly. So then the Maori people sold some land in the west coast to the government of New Zealand, including Greymouth. And to this day, many of the districts are still under Maori ownership. With the purchase of the land, the town and the river were renamed after Governor George Gray. With new land to settle and lots of mining opportunities, a gold rush was born in the West. Along with the export of coal and a bountiful fishing industry, the local economy grew and flourished. Nowadays, Greymouth is the largest town and is considered the administrative center of the West Coast. In 2013, Greymouth's population was 9,654. Then, decades later, as the gold rush died down, the production of coal continued to be a great factor in the local economy. Surveyors focused on exploring the land for more coal in the surrounding towns to the north, east, and south of Greymouth. In 1946, Harold Wells, a surveyor, made a geological examination of the land around 46 kilometers or 29 miles northeast of Greymouth within the Paparoa mountain range called Pike River. Because of the elevation and proximity to the range, he recognized the vast coal resource that can be harvested in this area and was impressed by the high-grade quality of coal. But because of its far distance from Greymouth and the low price of coal at that time, it wasn't until 30 years later that Pike River was even considered by the mining industry. Then in 1982, the Pike River Coal Company was formed and bought the rights to explore the area. Within a span of 13 years, the Pike River Coal Company closely examined, explored, and finally received authorization to develop the land into a coal mine. The decision to open the mine was due to the increased demand for high-grade quality coal in the 1980s. The company began construction in 2005. Before the company could reach the actual mine entrance, an 11-kilometer road or around 6.8 miles and several bridges needed to be built for access and export. The last section of the road to the mine entrance had the road bending around a steep, gorgy part of the pike stream across a mixture of jointed hard rock and landslide debris. Despite the difficulties, the road and bridges were completed in 10 months. Then construction on the tunnel through the stone began. The tunnel is about 2 kilometers or around 1.2 miles. Now unlike the fast completion of the road going into the mine, the tunnel took twice as long and was twice as expensive. Eventually, on November 27, 2008, the mine was officially opened to start coal production. When the tunnel was built, it crossed the Hawera Fault, which caused some problems. One of these problems was the collapse of a ventilation shaft that blew out methane gas inside the mine and fed fresh air from the outside with the use of a large fan. The collapse was around February 2009. Now, since the mine was unable to remain in business without a proper working ventilation system, it was decided that they abandoned the collapsed area and build another bypass shaft. However, instead of building that fan on top of the shaft, this time the fan was placed at the bottom. And if you ask the mining industry, this decision was easy to do, but not so good in the long run. Many other issues plagued the mine as it was being built, including machinery malfunctions and other technical difficulties. But, after unexpected delays and the said issues, in February 2010, the first shipment of coal weighing around 60,000 tons were exported. Well, the mine was expected to produce a million tons of coal per year, but instead, in the first shipment only had less than half its yield. After the initial shipment, There was increased pressure by the company investors and stakeholders to produce more, despite the delays and mechanical issues. Now let's talk about the mine itself. So the mine went as deep as 200 meters, or around 660 feet underground, and was accessed by that tunnel that was built earlier. Now this tunnel goes inside the mine with a 5 degree slope, so it kind of goes downhill a little bit. In mining terms, this tunnel layout with a five-degree slope is called a drift. The drift leads to the coal mine itself and, running parallel to it, is the conveyor belt that transports the coal above ground. And If you look into the entrance of the mine, it's basically a large opening on the face of the mountain. Outside of the mine, is a building with a control room equipped with an intercom system for constant communication with the workers who are currently on shift inside the mine. The original plan of the company was to have 150 full-time staff members, but at that time, there was such a demand for workers outside of the country which paid more and left the gray mouth area scarce of laborers. So this prompted the company to hire anyone able-bodied and willing to work. And by the time 2010 rolls in, there was no mine safety officer overseeing the health and wellness of the mine and its workers. On the afternoon of Friday, November 19, 2010, the Pike River mine was in full coal production. There were several employees of the mine and other contractors who worked underground in different shifts around the clock. As the miners clocked in for their shift and went inside the mine, each one hung their ID badge on the board just outside. Among the employees were Daniel Rockhouse and his brother Ben, who were both on shift that day. There were 29 other miners all over the tunnel, which as we knew, went as deep as 200 meters underground. At around 3.44 pm above ground, control room operator Dan Duggan was on the radio trying to reach someone inside the mine. On the other end was Malcolm Campbell asking Dan who he needs to reach out to. Oh, just after the A-beam and After that exchange, the operator never got a response back. At the same time, Daniel Rockhouse was refilling his loader when suddenly he was knocked off his feet from the explosion that came from deep inside the mine. It was the same noise heard on the radio by the control room operator. Daniel lost consciousness for what seemed like forever, and when he came to, he was surrounded by smoke and darkness. Daniel tried to get up on his feet, but was unable to muster enough strength because of the high-pitched ringing in his ears, so he started crawling toward the mine entrance. Minutes later, as he regained his bearings and got up on his feet, he used his hand in the tunnel wall as a guide. Luckily, Daniel was able to find a compressed air line, which he used to take in fresh air to help him breathe. As he was making his way outside, he stumbled upon his co-worker, Russell Smith. Before the explosion, Russell was inside his loader. Russell crouched down the front seat as low as he can. Even though debris continued to pelt the outside of the loader, Russell managed to get out of the vehicle, but did not make it far and fell down. When Daniel found him, he was badly hurt and could not keep his balance. So Daniel and Russell held each other up and started walking towards the entrance of the mine. Moving ever so slowly, they followed the tunnel's railings and hoped to reach the mine entrance. Outside, even though the control room operator did not receive a response from inside the mine, a mine electrician was sent to investigate. This electrician made it a little bit inside the mine when he was forced to go back because of the toxic air. Covered in ash and dirt, Daniel and Russell made it out of the tunnel. Both were struggling to breathe from the smoke and were slowly showing signs of carbon monoxide poisoning. It took Daniel and Russell a solid two hours to get out of the mine. An hour after the explosion, emergency services responded and made their way to the mine. Daniel and Russell were immediately brought to the nearest hospital. Before leaving the area, Daniel told emergency responders he distinctly remembered three of his colleagues coming up the mine as well, close to where he was. At around six in the evening, national emergency response plans were activated. There were several ambulances and rescue helicopters en route to the scene. Also, trucks carrying air vents were brought in. At this point, there were 27 men suspected to be trapped inside the mine and no communications, even though the intercom was still active. So the police made the phone calls to notify families. Then, family members were told to gather at the Red Cross Hall in Greymouth to await further news. This was around 9.15 in the evening. Then a spokesperson from the company shared that they suspected 27 miners were trapped, 15 employees, and 12 contractors. That was all they know at this point. The next day came and no signs of activity were seen or felt down the mine. Rescuers were unable to get inside further the mine due to the air quality and instability of the tunnel walls. The CEO of the company, Peter Whittall, confirmed that 29 men were below ground and that rescue plans were being made. But before the rescue teams can get inside the mine, the air quality has to be tested to ensure their safety. Unfortunately, the specialized gas testing equipment had to be imported from Australia and even though the first round of air testing came back all clear and rescue teams geared up to go in, The company decided to stop any attempts to enter the mine because the testing was found to be inconclusive and not enough samples were taken. So the police agreed, and no rescue attempts were made on the second night after the explosion. The hope of everyone above ground is that the miners may be huddled near the ventilation shaft where there is fresh air. Miners are also trained in emergency situations and to self-rescue, Each one had a self-rescuer on their person at all times. A self-rescuer is a form of breathing device in case the air becomes toxic. The workers at Pike River had self-rescuers with 30 minutes of air and were trained to use the drift as a preferred escape in an emergency. However, officials recognized that the shafts above the mine were unobstructed and any one of the trapped miners could tap on the pipes or at least scream for help on the third day after the explosion some of the families were brought near the mine air samples were being taken every half hour each sample showed high levels of methane and other poisonous gases with low oxygen which made it unsafe for rescuers once again no further rescue attempts were made because there may be an ignition source inside the mine that can cause more harm this would be the third night that the miners were trapped inside. Then, a bomb disposal robot was deployed inside the mine for further testing and to provide a live video feed of the current status of the mine. The video feed showed damages from the explosion and mostly debris. Although the robot reached inside, the battery eventually ran out. So on the fourth day, November 23rd, a second robot was deployed this time there was a mining helmet found on the ground with its light still shining. Although the robot was able to reach further in, it ran into some water and broke down. Two more robots were scheduled to arrive in the next two days. Another day went past with no rescue. Hope is fading fast. On November 24th at 2.37 in the afternoon, a second explosion from the inside of the mine snuffed almost all glimmer of hope. Fearing the worst, officials determined that the second explosion killed all 29 men. The rescue efforts were changed to recovery mode. It will never be known if any of the miners were alive before the second explosion. What made matters worse were two more explosions from the inside of the mine occurred on November 26th and the 28th. The last explosion produced fire coming out of the shafts on the top. By then, all hope was lost. Greymouth Mayor Tony Coxhorn said that the disaster is the West Coast's darkest hour. The 29 victims ranged in age from 17 to 62. The youngest was Joseph Dunbar, who was on his first shift underground and the oldest was Keith Valley, lovingly known as the Gentle Giant, and whose brother Joff Valley played for the All Blacks rugby team. A public memorial in honor of the miners was televised all over New Zealand on December 2nd. Now, even though mining disasters do happen, this one that happened in Greymouth was involved in some controversy. It was found that the increased methane and an unknown ignition source caused the explosions inside the mine. The police and the Department of Labor put together a team of investigators who will eventually bring evidence for prosecution. The investigating team were composed of 15 members and interviewed at least 200 people. They interviewed a former mine supervisor, who stated that it wasn't unusual that miners were subjected to higher concentrations of methane while at work and that they would blow compressed air on the methane alarms to prevent it from going off since then there was increased pressure from the public and from the families of the miners to gain re-entry to the mine because in august of the same year a mining accident also happened in chile and had 33 men trapped inside the cave, and all 33 survived and were eventually rescued. However, the circumstances between the two mining accidents were different because the mine in Chile did not have poisonous gases and methane inside the mine itself. Officials and rescuers were not able to reach the mine due to the toxic atmosphere within the mine. There was talk about a so-called window of opportunity. This window of opportunity is a time frame where it was quote-unquote safe to enter the mine after the explosion occurred. Investigators later debunked this theory and any criticism that mentions a lack of courage on the rescuer's part were never mentioned again. The way the investigators disproved this window of opportunity theory is that because the mine is filled with gas, there is a high chance that another explosion can occur at any time, which makes it unsafe. And as we've heard, there were several explosions afterwards, although in this case, it occurred days later. The best practice around the world is to re-enter a mine only when there is reliable data that shows safe levels of gas in the atmosphere. In this case of Pike River, the tests were done during the days after the explosion were inaccurate and weak, not enough to deem the mine as safe for rescuers to start their jobs. Then there are the videos. There was also some closed-circuit television footage that recorded the explosion. The families were shown this footage after five days. Five days! The company felt that there was not enough relevant footage to show the families, but the families felt otherwise, and there were some suspicions that the video was edited. The video showed activities inside and outside of the tunnel and within the mine before the explosion. And when the explosion happened, a video outside the mine by the entrance showed a shock wave followed by black smoke and debris coming out of the tunnel. Officials said that there were over 30 hours of footage that they had to comb through and showing all of it would be a waste of everybody's time. Months later, in January 2011, the recovery efforts were halted since it was deemed unsafe for rescuers. It was then that a decision was made by the company to seal the mine entrance and shafts. Obviously, the families dejected this idea because this means that their loved ones will remain entombed in the mine for an unknown amount of time. But despite the family's objection to this, a permanent steel door was installed in front of the mine. Kevin Pattinson, a fifth generation miner, was one of these men who sealed the mine entrance about 300 meters from the entrance. Him and his crew did their best to be as respectful as possible. Kevin placed a note on the steel door that read, Colleagues and friends, we have commenced our journey to you. This has been the first step to bring you home to your loved ones. We will not rest and we will never give up. We will return. From New Zealand Mines Rescue Service and our Australian brothers. But then, it gets worse. The Pike River Coal Company lost so much money and laid off most of its workers, then subsequently closed. The company was bought out by Solid Energy. Throughout this handover, the families of the trapped miners never stopped contacting the previous owners to plead their case and recovering their loved ones from inside the mine but their prayers, public support, and heartbreaking pleading were not enough. To this day, their loved ones remain under the Paparoa Range, waiting for the spirits to be free. In November 2011, 25 formal charges were brought against three parties, the Pike River Coal Limited, Valley Longwall International, or VLI Drilling, and Pike River former CEO Peter Widal, in severe violation of the Health, Safety, and Employment Act. In 2012, VLI, who also lost two contractors to the mine explosion, pleaded guilty to three of the charges and were fined $46,800, while a year later in 2013, Pike River was ordered to pay $110,000 to each of the victims' families and fined $760,000. Due to financial hardships, the company did not pay the fine and only paid $5,000 to each family. The charges against Peter Whittall were dropped as the prosecutors felt that there is not enough evidence to convict. Instead, Whittall and the company negotiated terms of payments to the victims' families and the two survivors. Now, there is some positivity to this, because in 2017, the labor government formed the Pike River Recovery Agency. The goal of this agency is to re-enter the disaster area and attempt to recover the bodies of the 29 miners. The agency also took over control of the mine from solid energy and plans to return the land under the Department of Conservation. This re-entry is scheduled for 2019. The Royal Commission released its investigation and reported that the Pike River coal mine disaster was preventable. The mine exploded because of the high concentration of methane gas found naturally in coal. There were multiple ignition sources cited, but the substantial volume of methane trapped in the mine would have happened even with a small spark. The Commission also found that Pike River Coal Company failed to build proper infrastructure and ventilation that would have released methane outside the mine instead of slowly increasing inside. The company also failed to hear the complaints brought up by employees about the amount of methane in the air and many other safety problems. Sweeping changes to mining regulations and reform were immediately put in place in New Zealand. Changes were started even before mining is performed and required companies who apply for mining permits to include a health and safety plan already in place as a part of the standard operating procedures. The government was also subjected to these changes, including proper and certificated training of mine inspectors, new legislation for compliance, approved codes of mining practices, continuous reliable gas monitoring, and better emergency management. On the first anniversary of the Pike River mine disaster, a memorial stone was unveiled in Greymouth to remember the 29 men who lost their lives. Also in Adderau, miles downhill from the mine, sits a large half-dome rock with a plaque containing the names of the 29 miners. Since then, the families including Sonia Rockhouse and Anna Osborne, whose husband Milton died in the explosion banded together as the Stand with Pike Family Reference Group. As the recovery agency planned re-entry, the families wait in agony. For over many years, they have shed tears, pled their case, and asked for sympathy from all corners of the government. From their website, the group's mission is to seek truth, justice, and accountability for what occurred, to make sure New Zealand learns every possible lesson from Pike River and to bring as many loved ones back to their families as humanly possible. It's essential to us that no one involved gets injured, let alone killed, trying to achieve this. It seems that the group's hard work is finally paying off as the recovery team has been put together, currently training and preparing for the worst. They know what is at stake here, and that the entire country of New Zealand, the mining industry, and the entire world will be watching and waiting. Thank you for listening to this episode of Untimely. We'll sure to update you if there are any progress to the Pike River Coal disaster. Also, if you're listening to this Please make sure to stop by and rate us and review us in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Google Podcast, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. For more information about us, comment on the episode, or suggest topics, follow us on Twitter, at Untimely Podcast. We'd love to hear from you.